Let's stand together as we come now to the Bible. Now, my friends, Revelation chapter 3, and we're looking uh, this morning at uh, the letter to the church in Sardis, so that's uh, verses 1 through to 6. Revelation 3, beginning at verse 1, and uh, let's then pray as we come to God's Word. Father, would you grant us ears to hear what it is that the Spirit says to the churches. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do please sit down. Well, I suppose one of the most well-known proverbs that is in common Use is the saying, pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. A very well-known proverb. And in some ways, this letter that we're looking at this morning, the letter to the church at Sardis, is in a way an illustration of the truth of that saying, pride comes before a fall. You see, Sardis uh, was a city with claims to ancient glory, fame. It had in times gone by and been the capital of a number of different, various ancient empires, you see. And in particular, Sardis also was a rock citadel of unusual and impressive strength, this, this city, the citadel, rock citadel. You see, Sardis was situated on the top of a large hill above the surrounding valley floor, you see. And the sides of this hill, sort of rising up to the mount, were, were very, very steep. They were sheer precipices at all points. Bar one, narrow ascent to the city. A very strong place was Sardis. And of course, this one narrow ascent to the city was easily fortified, you would think. And so, as such, uh, Sardis, this rock citadel of great strength, it, it prided itself on being uh, impregnable. 
But this pride came before its fall. You see, several times in its history, Sardis had, in fact, caved in to the pressure of foreign invaders, despite its apparently very strong situation. And most famously, and the first time it fell to a siege, an army encamped outside its sheer rock-faced walls and detailed, sent a single sole climber up the mountain who opened the gates from inside. And when you read the contemporary accounts of this remarkable um, siege victory against this apparently very strong place, it seems clear that such a victory against Sardis was only really possible because of the sleepiness of the inhabitants. You know, apparently they thought no one could take their city and they hardly even bothered to set a guard. You can find that story in the ancient historian Herodotus. Uh, It's probably embellished to some extent, as he he tended to do, but nonetheless, it was a story that became proverbial for the city in Sardis. And it was reenacted, same kind of thing, several times again in its more recent uh, history as well. In fact, what's more, the very substance of this seemingly impregnable, apparently very strong uh, situation, the very substance of its rock walls had been devastated uh, very recently to when they would have received this letter. In AD 17, just a few short years before uh, the time we are considering this morning when they would have received the letter, AD 17, uh, just a little bit before then, there was a stunningly catastrophic earthquake which hit Sardis hardest of all. And what it, what it showed was that the rock on which the city perched, it was actually made of rather crumbly material. And so the earthquake devastated a large portion of this apparently very strong city. And so another ancient historian, a chap by the name of Pliny, uh, writes about that. And he records how an enormous um, uh, sort of help was sent. Material financial relief was channeled towards Sardis from the emperor at the time, uh, a man called Tiberius. So do you get the picture? Uh, Sardis, seemingly impregnable, (laughs) actually lamely capitulated to a whole series of foreign invaders and was perched atop a a, a sort of shaky, unstable foundation. Nowadays, Sardis is just a few hamlets. And the top of the hill, which was the citadel, is about a third the size due to the earthquake and other subsequent erosion of what is now obviously, rather precarious material of which this rock citadel was made. And the church, commonly enough, has taken on some of the characteristics of this, its environment. It too was sleepy. It too had a reputation of being alive. It Two would, if it did not wake up and guard the gates, have a thief come in the night. It too was proud. It too was in danger of a fall. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive and, uh, literally, 
you are dead. Wake up! There's a little bit of a mixed metaphor here, isn't there? You know, you're dead, wake up. You don't normally say to someone who's dead, wake up, do you? You know. And that sort of mixed metaphor kind of runs throughout the passage in various ways. But don't be confused by it. What's going on is Jesus is, as it were, expressing himself in a sort of dramatic way to get under the external appearance of this church in this city. He's sort of ringing the changes metaphorically to describe the condition of looking good but not actually being in a good place. In fact, the cry, wake up, that, that actual cry may perhaps have been the last-minute reminder historically to the city before it fell to those first foreign invaders. Maybe using the very words that were said. And here Jesus is issuing it in a different context. There is a, a climber ascending their fortress It appears that they are safe. They are not. Arouse yourself. And so he says, like was said in that time when the citadel was taken, he says also to the church, wake up. They were dead asleep. (laughs) And they needed to be aroused by this, this call of wake up, an alarm bell, if you like. The kind of alarm that we might hear. Is it on Tuesday mornings when the alarm goes off for, for whatever it is? What kind of wind blows here? Not a hurricane, but the other kind, you know. I get confused. but uh. And you hear it every Tuesday. Is it 10 o'clock Tuesday mornings? It's almost as if Jesus is using that very noise in the context of a church. Wake up! Something's going to happen. You've got to be prepared. So what what is this letter written then to teach us? Basically, it's saying looking good is not the same as actually being in a good place spiritually, necessarily. And it's doing so, of course, in, in three basic ways. It's describing the appearance, then the problem, and then the solution. And that's what we're going to do then this morning together. Appearance, problem, solution. First, then, appearance. Look then with me, my friends, at verse 1. Again, so Jesus says, and did the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars? I know your works. Notice that word, works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And then if you look down at verse 2, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So in other words, what's giving them the appearance and the feeling and the sense of full security that they are alive, that they have a reputation of life, were their works. That's what he's saying, of course. Now, actually, though, it's a little difficult, this part, because there are several aspects of this description about their appearance which are, frankly, very difficult to understand. So, you know, the seven stars. Well, it's clear that the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. Chapter 1 at the beginning of Revelation tells us that. But what are the angels of the churches then? You see, the seven stars are the angels. What are the angels, right? And, And anyway, what are the seven spirits of God? I thought there was just one Holy Spirit, you might say, as you read that. 
And what's more, why, even more tricky, why does Jesus talk about their works not being complete in the sight of, as he says, my God? That's a strange way for Jesus to speak. If Jesus is God, why does he call the Father God his God? You see, Revelation was never an easy book. <laughs> Let's try and unravel some of this a little bit, and I think we'll get some distance. So then, the angels or stars of the churches, what are they? Well, they've been interpreted in several different ways historically. And basically, the choice is between seeing them as a characterization of a person, so the angels are sort of characterizing a person in each of the churches, or the essence of the church, they're somehow the sort of spirit or the essence or the, the, the sort of um, feel of the church, the, the characterization of the body, the group of the church, or they are a literal angel, you know, watching over the church. Now, which of those is most likely? Well, the last, that it's a literal angel, while attractive, because it's just simple, can probably be easily dismissed. Uh, Not necessarily, but probably. Why? Because Jesus would be unlikely, I think, and most would agree, to dictate a letter to John to a literal angel and then to the churches. I mean, there are just less roundabout ways for heaven to send its mail, if you see what I mean, right? It's possible, but unlikely. And the first of those options, uh, that it's a, a sort of characterization of a person in the church, is often nowadays dismissed. It's a rather old-fashioned way of looking at it, but I think at least deserves consideration. The word for angel means messenger, and it is true. It's rarely translated as messenger in the New Testament and most often means a literal angel, as it does a little later in the letter. But if it cannot be a literal angel here... Then, then it must be an unusual use of the word, which it does sometimes carry. So traditionally then, if you read commentaries from 100 years ago or so, the, the usual way would have been to see the angels of the churches as taken to refer to the pastors of the churches. I, I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but I think it's possible. It's also possible, though, and most of these days think this is more likely, that the phrase the angels or the stars of the churches refers to the spiritual essence of the church. That is its nature and quality in some way, the, the, the kind of things that would come to your mind when you think about the church of Sardis as a, as a body, as a group, its essence, its nature. And again, that's possible. But the problem with this view, rarely mentioned but obvious when I think you, you consider it, is that this is hard to distinguish between the seven golden lampstands themselves who are defined as the churches in chapter 1, 2 and must in themselves then represent something of the spiritual essence of the church as well. So in other words, if we interpret the angels as churches, how is that distinct from the church of which they are the angel and the seven lampstands which are the churches too? You know, it just, you begin to have too many different pictures, you see. So in the final analysis, I think we cannot be too dogmatic about the interpretation of this matter because it's not as far as I can see, explicitly defined for us in the Bible. Nonetheless, as traditional as it may sound, for the reasons outlined, I sometimes wonder whether logically the best answer is the rather old-fashioned one, the traditional one in this case. Not always, but in this case. 
That is, the angels are the gospel messengers of the churches in some way or other. That is, they're pastors. Now, it would make sense then for the letter to be written to them and then be read out to the churches. It's possible. What about the seven spirits of God? What does that mean? Well, that is harder still and probably will always remain somewhat enigmatic. Uh, Sometimes it is said about this, uh, that this is to do again, uh, said about this as well, that it's to do again with something about the essence of these seven churches. But in chapter 1 verse 4, the same seven spirits are described as connected not to the churches, but to Jesus, the authority of Jesus. They are before his throne, you see. They're, They're somehow connected to Jesus. So then it seems to me that in some way or other then, the seven spirits are roles or characteristics of the one Holy Spirit, perhaps a a metaphor of of the divinity of the Spirit, the perfection of seven perhaps. Interesting enough then, Justin, an early church commentator, identifies seven different roles for the Holy Spirit as predicted in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2. Now, it's important to see all this when we come to consider why Jesus calls the Father God, my God, you see, at the end of verse 2 in our, in our passage. Because we have, in fact, when you put the pieces together, a closely interwoven Trinitarian, an assumption about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So would you note then that contra the typical Eastern Orthodox view that the Holy Spirit here seems to me to be assumed to proceed from the Father uh, and the Son, you see. The Holy Spirit is held by Jesus. He has the seven spirits in some way. And so the Spirit's procession comes from the Son as well. I think that's the assumption, seems to me. Again, though, Jesus... You've got to understand, Jesus, the Lord Jesus of majestic fire and authority, it's described over and over again in, in Revelation, the center of the throne, Jesus, is still though modeling for us the submission so foreign to our sinful nature that is present within the very nature of the Trinity. Jesus willingly, not coercively, but willingly submits to his God, his Father God, while remaining at the same time fully and equally God himself. See? Now, as I say, all of this then is best approached from the issue of appearance. Why is that? The issue of appearance that it's the heart of the passage. See, their works made them think that they were secure. But the reality was otherwise. And now, you see, the, the message to their messenger, the Holy Spirit in all his power, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, is about to reveal to them the problem and then the solution, you see. The second, then, the problem. What was wrong? And now they know they can be confident that uh, the revelation of this problem will be accurate because of who it is coming from, Father, Son, and Holy 
spirit. What was, what was wrong? Well, look at verse 2 again. The works were not complete. And then verse 3, they had forgotten their message, hadn't they? They, they needed to remember so often we need to remember as Christians, don't we? We quickly forget. So it says, remember them what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. In other words, their good works were giving them a full sense of security. They were not being persecuted, unlike their brothers in other cities in Asia. They were not giving way to heresy, unlike their brothers and sisters in other churches. They were not inactive. They were not asleep because they were passive. They, 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 they had works. They were doing a lot, but they were holding in extreme form a tendency of all of these churches in Asia, the seven churches in Asia, all these churches, they were holding in extreme form a tendency that they all had in one way or another. Jesus says to every single one of them, except one, I know your works. He's familiar with that. They're all slipping away, you see, from original grasping of the message of grace to a form of legalistic righteousness, as we might call it. They're becoming legalistic, you see. But he's saying here, such works are not complete. They can never be complete in the sight of God. So they need to remember what they had originally heard. Keep it. That is the gospel, the message they had first received. Now, I don't know about you, but I come across this thing all the time these days in church life. Not just here, but wherever I, wherever I go. You know, I say to someone, you need to believe in Jesus alone and, and to be saved. And they come back and effectively say, yeah, I know, I need to be more religious. It's not what I'm talking about. I say grace, they think, oh yeah, deeds. I, I say faith, they think, oh yeah, works. I say church, they think, oh, more moral guilt. I say God, they think, oh, no, uh, you know, let's get really morally judgmental. Do you find this? I find this. I mean, it's always been the case in human society, but it seems to me to be very prevalent these days. The, the trouble with the church at Sardis was that they were resting on their works. They, they thought that these were enough, and they were, well, I think proud of their works, much like the city was proud of its great fortress. But such a city of works has a terrible weakness. It would be taken. It was not sufficient. It would fall. Why? Because works cannot be complete in the sight of God. I know what you're thinking. Oh, yes, I've heard this before. I've heard this stuff about faith and believing in Jesus. Oh, yes, okay, preacher, I'll try and do better. Again, you see, it's this reality. There is a reality to, as, as, as it's put here in Revelation, the seven spirits of God. That is to the Trinitarian nature of God, to his holiness and greatness and the power of the gospel, the power of the, of the Spirit. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not going through the motions. I've got to do more, more works. This is, this is a changed heart. And believing in Jesus is not just about, oh, I've got to complete my works. Because you cannot. Never. Ever. You see, 
Uh, and, and this, you know, diagnostically, I suppose, if we, if we tend to rely on our incomplete works for favor with God, we tend to say things like this, I think. Uh, uh, here's an issue in my life that needs sorting out, therefore I have to try harder until I sort it out. Well, there's lots to be said for trying harder, and that's a good thing. But the person who understands grace is also able to fall on their knees and ask God to do what they know they cannot. Often our prayer life reveals whether we are slipping towards legalism. I think. Or sometimes for guidance, you know, we, the person who, who realizes this is all by grace and that God is in control can, can move forward in their lives because they know that it will not be perfect, but God is. But the person trusting their works finds it very hard to move forward in their life. They tend to be stuck, I, I think. Why? Because their works are not complete. They, they've got unfinished business. You see. Well, of course you have unfinished business. Your works are not complete. They never will be. Simply, the, the person trusting in their works so diagnostically, of course, tends to always feel guilty. You know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, you know, I feel condemned. And they, they tend to beat themselves up about that because their works are not complete. Because, perversely, they're proud about trying to complete their works. Again, diagnostically, the person trusting works can have lots of activity and organization, lots of works, but typically can find it very hard to complete them, to finish them, because they're not complete. And they, they constantly, as it were, dig up the foundations and dig up the roots to see whether it's going right. And the answer is, no, it's not going right, but, but they'll never be complete. How could our works be perfect in the sight of God? Well, so what's the solution? Look at verse 3. It is simply remember. That is so often the call to God's people. Remember how you were rescued from Egypt. Remember how you were rescued at Calvary. Remember. Or verse 4, as it were, the good news for Sardis, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Why are they worthy? Is it because their works are perfect? No, verse 5, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That is, they are to remember what they received and heard. That is the message of grace, the power of the Spirit, and all the rest. For this message will be what will give them the pure clothes and help them to know that they are worthy and that their name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Now, once again, there's a lot of imagery here that's helpful to sort of unpack. So, for instance, Sardis was, interestingly enough, an early center of wool dying. So there's a lot of image here of, of, of white clothes, isn't there? 
which may have had special resonance for them. They may have been able to depict what a really sparklingly white garment looked like in their laundry, as it were. You know. And also, every Roman triumphal procession paraded the victors in white garments, you see. So it always had that kind of resonance of victory, the white garments. And the book of life, well, that's an Old Testament reference, and I think both together, one with sort of ancient civic overtones of the, of the, uh, the city-states of the ancient world. So when Moses prayed that the people of God would be spared God's judgment, he asked that instead his name be blotted out of the book of life. Same phrase, same reference that is being um, evoked here. But then also in ancient society, there was a practice of keeping a, a civic role of citizens in each of these city-states, and so a bit like our electoral role, perhaps. And so what's being said here is their names would never be erased, never blotted out. That word is the technical Greek word for the process of, of removing someone from a list, like we might say wiping the slate clean. Well, that will never happen. Never erased from the book of life. There is confidence in eternal life in heaven, as we would say. So what is the solution? It's a renewed relationship with Jesus. That's what they are to remember. This is what caused them to be justified, that is, worthy even in the sight of God. That's what ensures their permanent status in heaven, they need to remember that gospel, that message, so that they can realize that even though their works are not complete, yet in the sight of God they can stand righteous, pure, reckoned to be perfect. With those white garments on the victory parade throughout the city, with, with their names on the electoral roll, never with the slate white clean, never. Because one greater than Moses stood in their place at the cross and died where they should have done. Our great and many moral failings then, and they are great, and they are many. Our great and many moral failings are no longer the issue. The issue is Christ's great and final sacrifice. And I'm not talking about being more religious. So the appearance, a reputation of life, the problem, a reality of uh, insecurity, though they felt pridefully very secure, the solution to remember uh, the gospel of Jesus and therefore have a renewed relationship with Jesus. Or as we might rather whimsically put it, Sardis had a name, they had fame, but boy were they lame. 
Christians instead who trust the biblical gospel have a relationship, a righteousness, and a reward that is not theirs but the gift of God. Well, my friends, of course, as we've seen then, the church at Sardis had been influenced by the culture in which it was placed. It had grown sleepy, just like the apparently impregnable fortress of Sardis with the citizens within it. And as we conclude, the question we have to ask ourselves then is, what is it about our culture, our city, our region, which subconsciously influences our attitude towards religion, church, and God? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm sure it is subconsciously influencing us. I wonder whether we tend, because of our background, to interpret all messages from the angels of God's churches as just moral pragmatism. You know, if I do this or pray this or take the Lord's Supper in a certain kind of way, my job will do better, I'll make more money, and I'll get better reputation. Moral pragmatism. Or perhaps we tend to assume that our citizenship in heaven is secure because we were born in a certain city here. Or maybe we tend to think that our understanding of the gospel is most likely to be extremely accurate because, after all, we did quite well on our theological test scores. In other words, whatever situation we are from, whatever our background, what works are we relying on? None are complete in the sight of God, but the grace of God is sufficient. Let's pray together. Jesus, you who hold the seven spirits of God, who hold the seven stars, sovereign Lord, would you grant us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches? Would we not be like the people of Sardis who think that their citadel fortress is impregnable? Would we, instead of relying upon our works, and so feel condemned and unable to move forward, joyless, instead of all that stuff, have a renewed relationship with you, Jesus, by remembering what we received and heard. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.